Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, you can't say elite U.S. news media aren't on the story of the federal indictment of Robert Menendez, Democratic chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But articles like the New York Times's As Menendez's Star Rose, Fears of Corruption Cast a Persistent Shadow represent media's embrace of a kind of great man of history theme. The story seems to be mostly about the political fortunes of one individual. And the huge numbers of less powerful people that have been impacted by those compromised decisions are at best a kind of backdrop. When media try to tighten it, it can get weirder still. That New York Times piece headline included the idea that, quote, the New Jersey Democrat broke barriers for Latinos, but prosecutors circled for decades before charging him with an explosive new bribery plot, close quote. Come again? If elite media's lesson from the Menendez indictment is that some people over favor their personal friends and some people like to hoard gold bars, well, that's a storyline that leads nowhere. It calls nothing into question beyond the individual actors themselves. Is that the kind of coverage we need? What does it even have to do with foreign policy? Stephen Zunes is a professor of politics at the University of San Francisco. His most recent book was co-authored with Jacob Mundy. It's called Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution. It's out now in a revised and updated edition from Syracuse University Press. We will talk with Stephen Zunes about what's at stake in the Menendez indictment, beyond Menendez's political fortunes. But first, a quick look back at some recent press. Listeners may know that the FCC has been ineffectual for some time now because it's been short of full staffing. Big media players torpedoed with the most scurrilous of means, the nomination of public interest advocate Gigi Sohn. But eventually, Joe Biden's nominee, Anna Gomez, was sworn in as the fifth commissioner. In the wake of that, FCC chair Jessica Rosenworcel has now announced that the agency is going to be an active player again. At the National Press Club this week, Rosenworcel said that the FCC will vote on a notice of proposed rulemaking at its next meeting coming up in mid-October, and they're going to center the role of Title II. That's the part of federal communications law that gives the agency the power to even go about overseeing corporate control of the Internet, to push against price gouging, anti-privacy moves, access throttling, the whole range of things that make people hate their Internet service providers and make the Internet a less hospitable arena for activism and organizing. And that's before you even get to whether they're allowed to shut off service during national crises like COVID. The FCC, under the sway of corporations and their lobbyists, abandoned that Title II responsibility years ago under former chair Ajit Pai, appointed by Donald Trump, based mainly on his career as a lawyer for Verizon. 
With Title II invigorated, the FCC can engage net neutrality rules. Those that prevent ISPs from slowing access for those that don't pony up and speeding it along for those that do. All of which machinations we as end users may not even be aware of, but that absolutely affect what we see and know and act on. Net neutrality has always been overwhelmingly supported by the U.S. public. Few people even wonder anymore whether broadband access is a fundamental, like water or electricity, or whether you should lose access if you live in an underserved area, rural or urban. But corporate powers and government enablers have shown that they will work very hard to prevent it. Remember Ajit Pai pretending that the FCC couldn't acknowledge the flood of pro-net neutrality public comments because, well, there was technical sabotage. That turned out to be a brazen lie. Net neutrality, backed by the FCC's Title II authorization, is nothing less than the ability to monitor and regulate hugely powerful companies' control over an essential element of public life. The ability to inform yourself, to communicate, to participate socially and politically. In other words, we should expect pushback, both loud and subtle. We've already seen headlines like the Wall Street Journal suggestion that a newly empowered FCC chair moves to rekindle net neutrality fight between tech and telecom giants. Well, fighting, that sounds bad. And then where are we in a fight between tech and telecom giants? The thing is, there is something very important for all of us at stake here. So look out for coverage that suggests otherwise. And finally, as U.S. citizens were being subjected to media massaging of the history of September 11th, 2001, with familiar stories about how we were all wrong about the reasons to invade Iraq and we were all surprised by the disastrous outcomes, The Economist was working to massage our understanding of September 11th, 1973, when the Chilean government, led by Democratic Socialist Salvador Allende, was overthrown in a violent coup d'etat by U.S.-supported General Augusto Pinochet. In a late August edition, the Smart People magazine told readers that Chile is still haunted by the coup. And in its blurb for social media, they explained how they would like us to feel about that. Quote, It would be better for Chile if Salvador Allende and Augusto Pinochet became purely historical figures rather than sources of political inspiration, allowing the country to look forward. Clearly, that is still hard. Close quote. Clearly, it would be better for The Economist, the voice of the Anglo-American business class, if Salvador Allende were a purely historical figure, meaning that no one would take political inspiration from his example of trying to use the electoral system to change an exploitative economic system. But, as the magazine laments, getting people to accept that the elected president and the dictator who overthrew him are just two sides of the same coin, well, that's still hard, as well it should be. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. (music) 
Major news media outlets have been putting out numerous stories on the federal indictment of Robert Menendez, Democratic senator from New Jersey and chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Those stories are overwhelmingly on details of the charges of suspect dealings. Interesting, important information, and on the support or lack thereof from other Congress members. Also, undoubtedly meaningful information. The September 27th New York Times explained that, quote, Mr. Menendez was charged on Friday with using his power as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee to assist the government of Egypt and businessmen in New Jersey in exchange for bribes that included bars of gold bullion a Mercedes-Benz convertible, exercise machines, and more than $500,000 in cash, close quote. That sentence says a little more than it says in that it reflects U.S. media's evident prioritizing of details of the alleged corruption. What did he get? Gold, halal meat, over interest in the impact on human beings who are not Robert Menendez or his wife or her friends or any business people who got cut a sweet deal, anyone who might be affected by this assistance to the government of Egypt. We are still in the midst of it, of course, but so far anyway, media seem more interested in what the Times called the deepening crisis Mr. Menendez faces than what it means for anybody else. Stephen Zunas is a professor of politics at the University of San Francisco. His most recent book, co-authored with Jacob Mundy, is Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution, out now in an updated, expanded edition from Syracuse University Press. He joins us now by phone from the Bay Area. Welcome back to Counterspin, Stephen Zunas. Well, I am absolutely going to ask your thoughts about the indictment and its implications. But I wanted to do just a little history first, because it hasn't been front and center in current coverage. And that context is important. Uh, You wrote back in January of 2021, when Democrats selected Robert Menendez as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you wrote that that decision rung alarm bells for advocates of peace, human rights, and international law. So why was that true already then? And were there particular issue areas that drew concern? There are quite a number. I mean, the uh, the brazenness, uh, I mean, the jaw-dropping nature of the uh, charges against Senator Menendez, as you noted, are great tabloid fodder. I mean, they're quite extreme. I mean, this is just not the official corruption, legal corruption we see, you know, especially since the Citizens United decision at the Supreme Court uh, of influencing uh, uh, politicians. But this is this is really old school mm-hmm. in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, the cash, the, the, the gold bars and everything else. And he's had a, a, something of a reputation in, in New Jersey politics for the for the corruption. I mean, he he um, was indicted some years ago on corruption charges, and ended in this trial with a hung jury. But despite this, the uh, Democrats uh, named him chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. But my concern back then, as with a lot of us, was not on the just the corruption per se, but he is one of the most hawkish, hard line. Uh, uh, Democrats in the United States Senate. 
And he was put in the very powerful position of being head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Now, historically, uh, the the Democratic heads of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee have actually tried to curb excesses in in militarism and uh, excesses in in terms of supporting human rights violators and the like. Uh, I mean, we think back to J. William Fulbright, who was a leading critic, not just of Nixon, but of Lyndon Johnson. In in terms of the war in Vietnam, we think of Frank Church in the uh, 1970s, uh, challenging the abuses by the CIA and other intelligence agencies. We think of Claiborne Powell and others. I mean, in terms of checks and balances, which unfortunately they're not a lot in foreign policy, but at least to some degree we could have it through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, when the Democrats have been in charge. But in choosing Menendez, uh, Schumer and the Democrats went in the opposite direction, someone who has been to the right of even these uh, you know, centrist um, and, uh, Democratic presidents. So Menendez was one of only two senators, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer being the other one, to to vote against the Iran nuclear agreement. He has attacked Obama from the right in terms of uh, his attempts at normalization of relations with Cuba. Uh, this, uh, this latter is particularly ironic because Menendez has been obsessed with the authoritarianism and human rights abuses under Cuba's communist government, but he has been one of the most vocal supporters of U.S. support for authoritarian right-wing governments with far worse human rights abuses, including that of Egypt. And I think the the, the big uh, thing that the mainstream media is really you know missing here is not just that he apparently received bribes from a foreign government, but one that has a particularly nasty human rights record, and even without the illegal apparent illegal activity. Why in the hell is the United States supporting this government in the first place? I mean, let's remember that Egypt gets more U.S. foreign aid, more arms and ammunition and uh, security assistance than any country in the world, save for Ukraine and and, uh, Israel. And uh, the the government of, of Egypt is one of the absolute worst in terms of its human rights abuses. I mean, since Sisi seized power, nearly a decade ago, that literally thousands of demonstrators have been slaughtered in the streets. There are over 60,000 political prisoners, one of the highest, if not the highest number of political prisoners anywhere in the world. And, the, and these aren't just uh, Islamist radicals or anything else, far from it. You know, many of these people are nonviolent, liberal, secular activists, the very people who, who led the nonviolent uprising in, in 2011 against the previous U.S.-backed dictator, Hosni Mubarak. Uh, we're talking about torture on an administrative basis, uh, not to mention corruption uh, up the wazoo. I mean, this is a horrific government. And yet, we've, for years, we've had bipartisan support, both in Congress and in successive administrations, for uh, supporting this regime. Now, there has been some growing uh, concerns in some circles, particularly among progressive Democrats, but even among a handful of Republicans and and others, about why the hell are we supporting this kind of regime? Uh, And Menendez, as head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, while occasionally giving lip service to, to human rights, 
has been steadfast in, in supporting this kind of aid. And indeed, part of this indictment appears to be that in return uh, for some of these uh, uh, lucrative gifts, he worked to lift a hold on $300 million worth of military aid that was being temporarily withheld on human rights grounds. But the problem here, uh, again, is not just the, the bribes and, 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 and corruption by Menendez, but the, the, the very question that we really need to be asking is, why are we supporting this regime in the first place? Absolutely. Well, let me just... Um just add to that, frankly, because I looked at a headline from September 14th of this year from the New York Times, choosing security over rights, U.S. approves $235 million in Egypt aid. And, um, you know, it was Secretary of State Blinken overruled congressional restrictions on U.S. military aid tied to Egypt's dismal human rights record. Okay, that's interesting. But then I see another headline. Despite Egypt's dismal human rights record, U.S. restores military aid. And that headline is from 2018, <laughs> you know. Um, so there's been this kind of, um, you know, yes, no, but, and it still is added up to millions of dollars of aid. I mean, this is all too familiar. I mean, some of us can think back to the uh, 1980s when the uh, Reagan administration would claim they were uh, concerned about human rights and were um, you know, pushing for human rights reforms in various Latin American dictatorships uh, that were promoting death squads and the like. I mean, this is, this is the same kind of thing. But the problem is, is that a lot of, of, of Democrats, even liberal Democrats, who, are, who have been willing to raise human rights concerns when the Republicans are in the White House, seem to be rather quiet. You know, when there's a Democrat in the White House, so there's this feeling we see, and this is, uh, I certainly find this in online discussions and elsewhere, that um, so much of the criticism about the Biden administration from the right is so uh, silly and outrageous, and given a very real threat of authoritarianism from the Republicans, people are so reluctant to say anything negative about Biden that... uh, you know, much of the uh, the uh, left liberal wing of the spectrum of this country uh, seems to be ignoring these the kinds of abuses that uh, would have mobilized people were they uh, being supported by Republicans. And again, it's not just Egypt, and this is really important. Menendez, you know, as head of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has been a fanatically strong supporter of the Netanyahu government in Israel and the Israeli occupation. He has attacked the United Nations, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the International Court of Justice, the International Criminal Court, virtually anybody who dares document or investigate violations of, of, of human rights or international humanitarian law by the Israeli government. And most Democrats at this point are starting to be, though very pro-Israel, more on the J Street end of the Zionist spectrum, that is, those that strongly support Israel as a Jewish state, but oppose the occupation and settlements. But um, Mendendez is aligning with APAC and the Republicans, the, the right wing of the, uh, of the Zionist movement, and in, in a totally unapologetic way, which is way, way beyond, to the right of average uh, you know, Democratic uh, public opinion in terms of the rank and file uh, voters. 
But it's not just Israel. He supports the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara. He is um, one of the few who's openly supported Trump's recognition of Morocco's annexation of the entire nation of Western Sahara, along with Israel's illegal annexation of the Golan Heights. And and here's a guy who talks about, oh, oh, uh, Russia cannot unilaterally change international borders. They cannot expand their territory by force in reference to Ukraine. That's certainly true. But then he says it's okay if a U.S. ally does it. <laughs> and and he, just like his, uh, his, his statements on human rights, criticizing uh, them and in Cuba and other you know, left-leaning countries, but uh, excusing them or even supporting them in terms of right-wing U.S. allies, his attitude on international law is the same way. It's a bad violations of, um, of international legal standards, the U.N. Charter. Um, you know, that's a horrible thing if a country we don't like, like Russia, uh, does it. But if it's an ally like Israel and Morocco, it's okay. And, and this is not what most Americans, especially most Democrats, want. Again, if you look at the public opinion polls, a vast majority of Americans, particularly on the Democratic side, believe that international law should be enforced consistently. I mean, just as you would not want a Democratic attorney general to only prosecute Republicans or a Republican attorney general to only prosecute Democrats, same thing with international law. Law is the law. You can't pick and choose uh, depending on the, uh, the, the political or geostrategic uh, orientation of the offender. Right. Well, against that backdrop, I think the fact that Menendez, who, as we're recording on September 28th, has pled not guilty, we're still in medias res, but he says that the federal prosecutors are misrepresenting routine congressional work. And in the context of what you've just said, I feel like that should set off an alarm uh, for an independent press corps, right? Um, that this is that he's even comfortable saying, well, this is just what you do when you're in a Congress. <laughs> yes, I mean, it is concerning that uh, that uh, even without this apparent uh, illegal activity, even without its rather brazen nature, the, the fact is, is that uh, it is really a scandal uh, that the United States continues to support uh, repressive regimes like Egypt, uh, like uh, Bahrain, like Saudi Arabia, like United Arab Emirates, like, like, like Morocco. Uh, they continue to support the um, Israeli and Moroccan occupations. I mean, if you go down the list, there's probably no single issue in foreign or domestic policy where public opinion – and U.S. policy is so widely differentiated. I mean, most Americans really do feel pretty strongly about human rights. And indeed, it's what we hear all the time. I mean, it drives me crazy uh, that to hear in, in, in people in the mainstream media, you know, uh, w w without irony, talking about how Biden is standing up for human rights, standing up for uh, international law without mentioning that the United States arms 57% of the world's dictatorships, 57% of the, of the world's authoritarian regimes receive U.S. military aid or arms sales. And this doesn't even count the countries that are nominally democracies, like Israel and India and, and others, which are also engaging in uh, human rights abuses. So um, I think this, this scandal, on the one hand, shows the 
a failure of the uh, mainstream media to recognize the larger structural problem. But on the other hand, I think it provides an opening for those of us who do care about human rights, who would like to see U.S. foreign policy as, as actually more consistent with our stated values to raise these issues uh, and to uh, challenge uh, not just these uh, um, corrupt politicians uh, like Menendez, but the whole system that ends up supporting uh, these autocrats and occupiers and the kind of system that would put a man like Menendez in charge of our foreign policy in Congress, the Democrats' de facto foreign policy spokesperson, in that kind of position in the first place. I'm going to end on that note. We've been speaking with Stephen Zunes, professor of politics at the University of San Francisco. His most recent book, co-authored with Jacob Mundy, is Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution, out now from Syracuse University Press. Stephen Zunes, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to learn about FAIR's print newsletter extra and our Action Alert Network. And it's also the place to show much-needed support for Counterspin and for the community-based stations that air our show, if you are able and so inclined. We appreciate it. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.